can't open a newspaper, scroll a news site, heck, even look on TikTok without seeing something tax-related. And all of these tax terms swirling around, it's more crucial than ever that you know what they mean and how they apply to transfer pricing. On this episode of The Fiona Show Transfer Pricing, we're taking it back to basics with a tax vocabulary lesson. So while the kids are out of school, you're back in. Get your number two pencil ready. Joining us today is an individual who knows the ins and outs of everything tax, our own chief economist, Mimi Song. But first, let's take a look at transfer pricing in the news. Power in numbers, just ask the OECD. 131 nations are on board with new international tax rules, specifically a global minimum tax of at least 15% in allocation of taxing rights. So which eight jurisdictions are giving it the thumbs down? Glad you asked. Barbados, Estonia, Hungary, Ireland, Kenya, Nigeria, St. Vincent and the Grenadines, and Sri Lanka. The OECD's inclusive framework has committed to finalizing the new international tax rules by October 2021 with the expectation that the 131 countries will enact the legislation shortly thereafter to be effective by 2023. OECD Secretary General Matthias Korman commended the long-awaited deal, saying, quote, After years of intense work and negotiations, this historic package will ensure that large multinational companies pay their fair share of tax everywhere, unquote. Spain is all over the map in a good way. The Spanish government is lending a helping hand to mutual agreement procedures, or MAP, with its latest initiative, Royal Decree 399-2021. Its aim? To simplify disputes over double taxation in, you guessed it, transfer pricing. The decree plans to boost the current MAP framework in three ways. First, Implement European Union law into Spanish domestic legislation to provide a uniform approach to tax dispute resolutions. Second, integrate the OECD BEPS Action 14 minimum standard into domestic legislation. And third, provide solutions to common problem areas in mutual agreement procedures like tacit rejection, incorrect applications, and resulting penalties. Something tells us taxpayers won't be complaining about these changes. Poland is looking to switch it up in the transfer pricing department. The Polish Ministry of Finance has proposed new measures as part of the Polish deal program to streamline transfer pricing requirements. The changes would look a little something like this, extending the documentation deadline from seven days to 14 days after the tax authorities request. Eliminating transaction documentation mandates around safe harbor bonds, loans, and credits, and changing the definition of related parties to include partnerships and corporate shareholders. The new proposed measures also call for elimination of a comparability analysis for transactions conducted with small-sized taxpayers and uncontrolled transactions with parties located in a tax haven. The proposals are now closed to public commentary, so the only thing left to do is wait. Hi, I'm Matthew DeMello, and you may know me as the host of the Fiona Show Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. And while I love to discuss transfer pricing, this podcast isn't the only place you can hear me doing it. 
Cross-Border Solutions recently relaunched Transfer Pricing University, a live webinar series where you can learn about modern day transfer pricing, everything from methodologies to comparables to preparing documentation to meet country specific regulations. Good stuff, I know. Chief Economist Mimi Song leads the sessions. I just ask the occasional obvious question. Since our program is NASBA certified, you can earn one CPE credit for joining each session. Pretty sweet. So what are you waiting for? Join us for Transfer Pricing University Weekly. Classes are free, so now you really have no reason to miss it. Sign up at xbs.ai slash tpu. Welcome back, everyone. We're here today with Cross-Border Solutions Chief Economist Mimi Song to talk about opening up our tax vocabulary, especially now that tax headlines are becoming more mainstream. Mimi, thank you so much for being with us again on the show. It's like I never left. <laughs> I know. But catching back up with you, I know you've been catching up with our, our guests on a lot of these fronts in recent episodes, but you've made your return to the Tarrytown office so have I. But what's it been like for you? What did you miss most about being in the office? I think it's the camaraderie. I think it's the energy you get from other people, being around your colleagues, the water cooler talk, right? Which is now, mm. in some cases, I, I thought it was really interesting. One of our previous guests we talked to, she indicated that the pandemic allowed her more accessibility to other professionals. Whereas in the past, those professionals were in a remote office and and they would say, oh, we'll schedule something next time you're in town, right? As opposed mm -hmm. to just reaching out via Zoom or Teams or whatever. But the water cooler experience, you know, that still is, is not translating that well into Teams yeah. or Zoom, right? Like just because part of that experience is, hey, you're having a really interesting discussion, perhaps thinking about other aspects of tax or transfer pricing, and then someone overhears it and says, by the way, did you see this or did you know about this or add their two cents when you didn't even know that they could bring that nugget of, of truth or perspective mm -hmm. to the discussion, right? So Amen. that's the beauty of the water cooler talk, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I totally agree with you. That said, just with the next question we have up uh, about tax news being all around us right now, I almost feel like my work life has encroached on my personal life. I was I was home a couple of weeks ago and my mom, who maybe only listened to the first few podcasts and then was very proud of me and decided it wasn't quite for her. <laughs> she asked me, what do you think of the global minimum tax? And I was just astounded work came crashing into, you know, my off time. <laughs> but, uh, you know, we're in a constant flow of tax news all around us. What's a recent headline that caught your eye for that reason or another? Well, the most recent one, of course, is this idea that 130 nations have preliminarily agreed to support this U.S. proposal for global minimum taxation. And I thought that that was like, what? Really? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I you have to be careful with headlines, right? Because sometimes those headlines, the intention is to catch your eye. And so you go into it and you're like, oh, okay, well, you, that's not really what's happening. But in this case, it kind of is. So it's, it's really yeah. amazing of the first step that has progressed with respect to this idea of global minimum taxation and, and how there's so much more 
I, I don't know if I want to call it buy-in quite yet, but so much more positive reinforcement that this is the right direction that we as a global nation should be going in, right? Yeah, no, of course. And I feel as though, especially among tax professionals, in what you were noting just there, there's there's always this kind of attitude, and this is very understandable, that any news that kind of happens in the global sphere is just kind of a, another government coming down to tax them. Very understandable where that perspective comes from, of course. But just to the point you were just making, it is incredible to get 130 nations from simply a foreign policy diplomacy standpoint. Just to, yeah, right. just to get 130 nations to agree on anything. The UN can barely do that. Right. And, uh, and we can be cynical and say, of course, it's taxes and and get a chuckle out of that. And that's meaningful. But that alone, getting that agreement is not nothing. Well, I, I wonder, right? And I wonder if it's related to the fact that the whole world just went through the pandemic and it was a global pandemic. And I do wonder if that had not happened, would we have gotten as far as they've gotten today? Yeah. So perhaps there's a little more respect and perhaps, you know, this mindset of trying to work together for the greater good on a global scale post-pandemic. I think that, you know, every country can appreciate the challenges that they've all had, and perhaps it's, it's our time to come together. On the note of the pandemic, how have you seen, now we've got a little distance, we're, we're in this almost post-pandemic period, right on the verge, how have you seen transfer pricing evolve through the pandemic? You know, I think in the beginning, of course, it was pretty significant, like, oh my goodness, what are we going to do? The pandemic is impacting our supply chains, that impacts our policies. So transfer pricing is sort of that aftermath of the changes in the business, right? Are we actually operating in accordance with the arm's length standard? Like the business you can operate how you need to, and then the prices and level of remuneration between those different organizations have to align with that and follow suit accordingly. So I think that the initial reaction was, how are we going to deal with all of this turmoil, these business changes to manage the transfer pricing framework? And now people are understanding, well, the arm's length policy or the arm's length principle still applies to transfer pricing. And now we're just applying the arm's length principle to the challenges and to the changes that organizations faced over the past year. So besides this news about BEPS 2.0, I'll put that to the side. I think that the transfer pricing landscape has just become, it hasn't changed per se. It has just become much more widespread that MEs are going to have to do a lot of work right? To retrofit, if you will, the transfer pricing policy mm. to the challenges of last year. I think more than one guest on our show since the pandemic began has mentioned that they feel the trend is that trends that were already in place were just accelerated by the pandemic. And that's true for many, many areas of life, not just international tax or transfer pricing on their own. But getting into our vocabulary lesson today, our first vocabulary word is tax transparency. Tax transparency is how much a business discloses about its activity through its tax information. Mimi, how have you seen the presence of tax transparency blossom the last few years? Why is it more prevalent now than ever? Tax transparency is 
extremely, it's gotten so much more attention over the last, I don't even know how many years, it's 2021 now, so at least five or six years, right? More than five years. And of course, that's become a bigger issue when we think about companies, you know, operating in any country around the world, right? The, the, the global economy, it's companies are not, no longer restricted to having to operate in just one country at a time and then taking them perhaps, you know, as long as a year to establish a presence in another jurisdiction to tackle a different market. And it might be even longer than that, depending on all the planning involved with making the decision to expand operations into other jurisdictions. But the digitalization of the economy has really created many more business models and and many more avenues for multinationals to be able to operate on this global scale, which then created this opportunity for this, this level of attention on this concept of tax transparency, right? Because now, multinationals are operating in more and more jurisdictions around the world. And because of that, they have to understand each of the different unilateral taxation structures for operating in those countries or or anticipate challenges that they might face in each of those different jurisdictions. And of course, each of the different countries are looking at it as wait, am I missing out on my fair share of taxable income here? Because my rules were based on this concept of a brick and mortar structure. My tax rules were created at a point when companies, it would take them longer to establish and be able to exploit my market and my people, if you will, right? But that has thoroughly changed. And I think that this is one of the reasons why tax transparency is becoming more and more important than ever. So fill us in on how we got here. What efforts have been enacted to enforce tax transparency? There are a lot of different things that have been happening over the last five to six years. The Multilateral Convention on Mutual Administrative Assistance, right? That has allowed countries to exchange country-by-country information. And of course, that includes over 130 countries that are part of the inclusive framework. And it is, in fact, what the largest tax information exchange event in history, according to the OECD. It is such an important piece of this idea of tax transparency, because this was the first thing that had to happen in order for countries to share that information, right? But then, of course, let's not forget, it all came from this idea of country-by-country reporting. This large document that request multinationals to report various components of financial information and operational information in every country where they have operations, right? And so they're looking for, okay, which countries do you have an entity or operational presence? How much taxes did you pay in those jurisdictions? How many employees do you have in that particular country? And then they're asking for a general overview of the functional profile of those particular operations. Like you check the box of, do you do manufacturing? Do you do distribution, right? And things of that nature. And by looking at that information or requiring companies to evaluate their their global presence, right, through this country-by-country reporting, through a very quantitative lens, you really get this better sense of where the challenges could be 
from a tax perspective. And, and, and it really does highlight a, a lot of the issues that the tax administrations were concerned about, right? This concept of double non-taxation or, or hybrid instruments and, and where tax payers were taking advantage of tax arbitrage situation, right? And so the country-by-country country reporting, of course, is where all of that information started. Then you have your MCAA agreement in place so that it could facilitate the sharing of information. And of course, the EU, I believe, is actually getting closer to figuring out how to publicize the country-by-country country reporting information, of course, making it more anonymous, but publicizing it such that multinationals get even more perspective on, you know, how do they compare against their peers? Are they overly aggressive? Are they less aggressive? Are they just, you know, standard par for the course? And then, of course, we can't forget about DAC 6, right? DAC 6 and the mandatory disclosure requirements based on the EU directive on administrative cooperation. That That's more focused specifically on a region, but at the same time, even within that region, that's one step towards creating that tax transparent environment, right? And that one was more focused regionally to help close out those tax loopholes specifically in the European Union. But of course, it can apply to cross-border arrangements with other foreign operations which meet these, quote, specific hallmarks, and that involved at least one EU country. And, and it's all about just creating and reinforcing this idea of tax transparency. And how will tax transparency efforts increase tax burdens for multinationals? Well, I think we already see it in terms of the reporting requirements, right? DAXIX alone, country-by-country country reporting alone, all of those reporting requirements are huge. It's a significant amount of manpower associated with it, right? I think when we talk about country by country reporting, for example, so that when it first came out as, oh, country by country reporting should be required and the OECD made that recommendation, I think it was sometime in 2014 when BEPS Action 13 was issued. And I was, at that time, I was actually at the bank. I was at MEFG Union Bank and we got this you know, we, we were trying to figure out, okay, who's going to be responsible for country by country reporting? And the Japanese parent company, of course, started to collect that information. And, you know, one of the great things about the Japanese parent company is, of course, they're putting the operational infrastructure in place to be able to collate and, and collect that information, to be able to submit it and meet those reporting requirements. But that took a significant amount of time, people, and money to build up that infrastructure. I want to say, I mean, it probably, it was probably at least half a million dollars or so, right, of just an investment cost. And then you have people that operationally have to manage that every year. And then you have to put together, you know, ongoing infrastructure to be able to repeat that on an annual basis, right? So there's a lot of increased burdens for multinationals. And of course, layer on DAC6. DAC6 happens. Now companies have to figure out how do we report this information? Because when companies are first putting together their operational systems, they're basing it off of what the requirements look like today. And with the evolution of requirements, 
unless you have a crystal ball and you know what the tax authorities are going to look for in the future, that type of information may not be sliced and diced in the way that you need it, right? In the way that you need to report it, because it's not a natural concept for management of a company, of a business to want to look at it in such isolated formats, right? Especially intercompany relationships, right? So, right. Now, what are some of the risks associated with increased tax transparency? So I think that, interestingly enough, if we think about the, the transparency efforts and, and we think about, you know, potentially making country-by-country country reports publicly available, as an example, that's going to create some issues on how taxpayers, how businesses are actually going to behave, right? They could be responding to that. I mean, it could have knock-on consequences, if you will, of the multinational behavior, which may not have been the intention behind it, right? That's, of course, a risk that of the unforeseen, unintended consequences of tax transparency, where businesses behave in ways that policymakers did not anticipate. So of course, that's the risk on one side, but if you look at it the other side, from a multinational perspective, the risk is you know, that all of a sudden they become the audit target, right? They become an audit target for no reason because when you just look at the numbers superficially, it looks worse than it is, but and then they have to spend many more time and resources towards the audit to be able to defend their position. And so I think that that's, of course, a challenge. And then the general sentiment from companies is also that this level of tax transparency weakens competitiveness, right? And so even from a tax perspective, right, the tax considerations could be, I guess, a competitive advantage in some situations, right? I think Amazon is probably an interesting uh, company from that regard that perhaps was the first to be villainized for, for using tax advantages to profit their bottom line, right? But it was still a way for them to be more advantageous. So if we remove that angle off of the table, if there is tax transparency, of course, companies will then need to remove that tax lever as a competitive factor, right? Right. And our second tax vocabulary word is tax evasion, which is the illegal act of hiding income or financial information to avoid paying taxes. So what is the difference between tax avoidance and tax evasion? Well, I think on the surface, immediately, I think, well, if you're evading taxes, you're going to jail. <laughs> so, <laughs> that, you're going to jail. So tax evasion is egregious, right? Tax evasion is basically you are trying to hide the money. <laughs> you're trying to avoid taxes at all costs. And that's a problem. Whereas tax avoidance, right, is a more deliberate exercise of figuring out how you can structure something to pay lower taxes within the confines of the law, right? I mean, you, you can think about it on a personal basis, right? Because most of our listeners can understand their own personal taxes. But for example, everyone probably invests in a 401k, right? Mm. And investing in that 401k 
it has an impact to your overall tax structure. And it's smart because then you're not paying taxes on it now and, and you're deferring that later. And so that's a form of tax avoidance, right? But it's right. legally allowable and it's legally permissible to do that based on the current construct. And there's actually, yeah, I'll, I'll table that to the side. <laughs> so tax evasion <laughs> is really when someone is saying, I'm going to open up a bank account in the Cayman Islands. I'm going to put all my money in the Cayman Islands. I'm not going to pay taxes on any of it. And can you just pay me under the table, mm. right? <laughs> like that's, yeah. that's falsifying that information, which reminds me there's a very famous actor who actually did that explicitly and he put all yeah. his money in the Cayman Islands and evaded his taxes. And now he had to pay hefty fines for that one. Right. 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 But, you know, I think that a lot of times transfer pricing is villainized that the, the concept of transfer pricing is considered to be this negative concept because people think it's so closely linked to tax avoidance and or tax evasion and people confuse the two terminologies, right? I mean, even when you think about the UK sentiment on transfer pricing or transfer mispricing, as they always say, HMRC is of course pursuing criminal investigations, taking the position that multinationals are actually evading taxes, not just structuring things based on what is legally permissible, right? And so they're actually pursuing those criminal investigations, especially when it comes to financial arrangements. And it's worth noting for both purposes, one's for retirement, one's for education. Well, it's smart tax plannings. And then, yeah. so this is where it gets a little bit hazy, right? Like, <laughs> mm -hmm. It gets a little bit hazy because, you know, you highlight tax avoidance. And then if we try to define tax avoidance, right? Mm-hmm. If there's like a fine line between, okay, what's tax avoidance, legally speaking, and, and like meaning good tax planning, right? Like right. good tax planning versus aggressive tax planning, right? Well, does it operate in any sense on kind of the shades of what could be called, not to sound like either a, an employee of Snopes or former President Clinton, but what could be called a lie? I mean, you know, if you work at Snopes, they're going to tell you there are different kinds of lies. If you talk to a philosophy professor, they'll tell you there's different kinds of not truth, like yes, withholding yes, information versus a right. white lie, et cetera. But right. uh, willful it, blindness is the legal concept in, so, in that case, right? Yeah. And treating honesty as something of a principle is kind of honesty or lying kind of like the fulcrum here in, in what? determines avoidance versus evasion or is that just one dimension can it still I think, be I, yeah, yeah i think it's one dimension it's so hard for us to make that determination uh, and this is why there's so much complexity when it comes to the tax landscape right? right and so i think that you know we're lucky we're not we can philosophize all day <laughs> okay <laughs> on, on the concept of what is the good versus the evil concepts here of tax avoidance, right? Where, where do you draw the line? But of course, there are very specific sort of business schemes that a lot of companies have deployed, which were structures to avoid tax as tax avoidance, right? Which in some people's minds is really good tax planning. 
And in other people's minds, like the tax authority, would be aggressive tax planning, which could verge on the edge of being tax evasion, okay? And so that spectrum and that philosophical question is not the one that we can answer. I think it's always based on the perspective of the person or multinational or things of that nature. So let's take, for example, not to pick on the Cayman, but we're picking on Cayman today. So (laughs) you can open up a shell company in Cayman Islands, right? You can open up a mailbox and that helps at least to create that infrastructure so that you can better utilize Cayman from a tax perspective. And companies have done that. And there there were actually a lot of companies who were able to use that Cayman Islands holding company structure to avoid a significant amount of taxes. And I will tell you, one of the big four came up with that construct and basically sold it to a lot of different companies. And this was back in, oh gosh, I want to say this was like in the 80s, 90s timeframe, right? I'm trying to think exactly. It was like the mid 90s, perhaps when that was happening. But then Some of those structures were being questioned. Then a lot of them started getting audited and there was a lot of pressure on those structures. And so many companies had to unwind that. And now the U.S., for example, knows what to look for. And they're like, okay, well, that's not appropriate. And we've already established that you can't just move your money to the Cayman Islands. And that goes further. Why was that useful? Well, in some cases, it was because they would transfer the IP to the Cayman Islands under a cost-sharing arrangement, under a profit-sharing arrangement, right? And and you think, okay, well, but I legally transferred the IP. I valued it at that point in time, and I gave it to them. And so that should, when you think about the contractual relationships and and sort of like at least the preliminary question of substance, right? They own that IP, and therefore they're the ones that should be able to exploit the IP. In Cayman, which right. exploitation of IP, I'm using that in terms of that earning the profit, okay, right? But they were just a shell company. They were just on paper. And the only right. thing that they had was the legal rights to the IP as an asset on their balance sheet because they bought it. But then that's where that moral line comes in. Well, but that does not merely make sense. So is there actually substance there? Is there anybody doing anything there? Are they actually, like, does owning the IP entitle you to all those profits? Which is the whole point here now of the BEPS action plan to say, hey, we see that's happening. We've seen that happening everywhere. Stop it. (laughs) Stop it. In so many words. In so many words. That's exactly Well, let's cast a little light on the brighter side of this equation and get a kind of a better sense of where this moral line is. Our third word is tax avoidance, which is when an m and uses legal tax schemes to reduce tax liability. What are some examples of these schemes? Well, I think that's what we had just talked about, right? The tax havens, the Cayman Island Shell Company, the transfer of that intangible ultimately to formulate a structure where now profits are being taxed in the Cayman versus in the US, right? And all of that coming out to play because you were able to move that IP, you were able to transfer intangible assets to a low tax jurisdiction where now all of the profits were able to be taxed at a much lower rate. 
And here's the thing. It's like at the point of time when a company would have done this, if you take Veritas, for example, they did this in anticipation that they would have a very valuable structure going forward, right? But then the IRS came in and said, no, but that's not cool. But because they saw how valuable that IP actually was, how much profit that this company was actually able to make. And and they looked at the entire pie instead of their own little sliver and thought something's wrong, right? And that doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense that all of the people who founded this company and developed this IP in the US are now able to sell it to a shell company and then have all the profits taxed in a different low tax jurisdiction. Like it just, it doesn't pass the smell test, right? So even to the person on the the street, right? On the surface, anybody on the street could tell you that doesn't really make sense. Yeah. Now, the G7 recently agreed to tax companies where their services or products are sold versus where they're located. How will this plan help tackle tax avoidance? So this is a huge difference in the definition or this concept of of nexus, the rights to taxation, right? And so this is a big step towards allowing certain jurisdictions that perhaps were not given any taxable rights because of the way that the tax code was written. Now they actually have an opportunity to tax the company within their particular jurisdictions, right? Where their services or products are actually sold, where that revenue is being generated. And so because of that, I think that it it helps this concept of tax avoidance because now companies have to be like, well, I have to pay taxes where I'm selling it. So behaviorally speaking, I think the policymakers are hoping that taxpayers will say, since I have to do it, there's no reason for me to move my IP to a low tax jurisdiction per se, because now I have to pay taxes in every jurisdiction, right? Or I have to look at the revenues generated in every jurisdiction. And it's harder for me to do tax planning across 50 different countries versus perhaps five, right? So I think the idea is to try to eliminate incentives for companies to shift their profits to these low tax jurisdictions because ultimately they have to get tax based on revenue, based on that this new definition of, of nexus. Of course. Now, a little bit before you brought up the notion of tax morality, let's treat that as its own vocabulary term. Tax morality is the intrinsic motivation to pay taxes and comply with tax rules. How is tax morality viewed by the global tax community? How does it impact public perception? Interesting fact, uh, tax morality or the idea here was first studied back in the 60s at the School of Fiscal Psychology in Germany, right? And I think this is a great concept that needs to be more discussed, uh, you know, like the OECD has actually the inclusive framework, you know, when they were having their public forum and their discussion, I, I, I kept hearing this concept of tax morality come to light. And I think it's a very important one in this idea that a multinational enterprise should want to really give back to the community or, or pay their fair share of taxes because they can ultimately see how those tax dollars are being deployed, right? And without being 
a good taxpaying citizen, it could have very negative consequences, right? It can have reputational damage. I mean, when you think about Starbucks in the UK, for example, right, where they got boycotted because of this this tax fraud headline, essentially, that's what happened. The public opinion is so strong because that impacts the bottom line. Those are your customers, right? And that reputational damage impacts the company's bottom line. But I definitely think that when we think about, you know, tax morality and each company's perspective on that, it it does become much more important because as you can see, right, all of the different large tech companies that were sort of targeted under this digitalization of the economy, pillar one and pillar two initiatives, right? They were sort of the catalyst here. When you think about it, they've all generally come out to support this notion of like, I'll pay my fair share of taxes. Like just, you know, fix your rules. I'm, I'm willing yeah. to do it. Right. Like, but of course I'm smart. And so I'm going to take into consideration what your rules are everywhere and, and do what's in the best interest of my company and my stakeholders and my shareholders. That's my job. Right. Right. And so it is sort of focused back on to the policymakers to challenge them. Now at this point, say, let's get the rules right. And we're happy to play in your sandbox, play by the rules and pay our fair share of taxes, but make sure the rules make sense for everybody. Make sure there's more transparency about how that's being played out. And there's a general countrywide consensus that needs to be understood about in terms of bolstering tax morality. Like I'll tell you a true story, right? When I was at working at the Japanese bank, the Japanese culture is very much a for the greater good culture, right? Right. And so when it comes to taxes, the bank wants to be a very good corporate taxpaying citizen. And they would not dare suffer any reputational damage with respect to any even teetering on the line of tax avoidance. So much so that any tax planning type of ideas that were brought to the table were, you know, one of the first questions that would come up was how many other companies are actually doing this? And is this aggressive or is this conservative? Like what's the perception here, right? We're not, we're not going to do anything that's aggressive. Of course. Now, how does responsible tax planning play into corporate tax morality? I mean, I think this goes to the statement I made before of a company's tax department is ultimately going to, if they're doing their job well, right? They're not just a compliance center, like filling out all the little tax forms, the numbers and submitting it on, right? If they're not paper pushers anymore, like proper tax planning, these these highly sophisticated tax professionals are going to look at what the rules are in all these different jurisdictions and they're going to play by the rules and they're going to think about exactly what's in the best interest of the company. So there's always going to be opportunities, right? Available within the tax laws. Unless the tax rules are exactly the same everywhere, you're always going to be able to find some sort of opportunity. And then the morality side of the equation is going to be, I see a great opportunity here am I going to actually exploit that opportunity now, right? And this actually goes to the story I told you about, you know, bringing these tax planning opportunities forth in a Japanese bank culture. 
even though it could result in significant savings, doesn't necessarily mean that a company is going to want to take it. They're going to want to look at the various dimensions and the spectrum of morality and almost have this philosophical discussion of what does this mean for my company, right? And what does this mean from a public opinion perspective? Now, how can M&Es straddle the line between tax avoidance and tax morality? I think that companies have to still do the right thing for their shareholders, right? But it's also about documenting the business case, explaining why it makes business sense to do so, that tax cannot be the only driving factor here. It needs to be entrenched in other beneficial factors. Tax should always be that that additional layer on to say, hey, the business wants to do X, Oh, actually, that's a great idea because if you look at, you know, the strategic aspect of it makes sense. The marketing aspect of it absolutely makes sense. It's good for the business, right? Operationally, this is how much it costs. And then from a tax perspective, oh, look, there's also a tax advantage here, right? And, you know, giving back from an economic community perspective, is it going to help that jurisdiction as well. And looking at that other side, you know, the beneficiaries, right? What are you bringing back to the community? I think, I think just making sure that you're looking at it holistically and that it's not just a structure, purely a tax play. I think that's going to help to really, you know, sort of bring the two together and allow the public sentiment not to think that tax avoidance is necessarily a negative concept that right now it's tax avoidance means tax evasion. No, but maybe tax avoidance could also be, well, it's effective tax planning, right? So. Right. Note to multinational companies everywhere. If you think the coronavirus has affected your bottom line, take a look at how it's devastated the economies of governments around the world. And where do you think tax authorities will look to make up for all that lost revenue? That's right, your transfer pricing. You can't afford to be non-compliant, but then you probably can't afford to pay for an overpriced consultant who bills by the hour either. Oops, sorry, Big Four. We've got the answer. Cross-border solutions, AI-powered transfer pricing software keeps you in compliance by preparing accurate, hyper-localized reports that protect you from transfer pricing audits, penalties, and adjustments. And our technology is available for one flat fee, a fraction of what you'd pay a big-name consultant. Again, apologies, Big Four. Stay in compliance and on budget with Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven transfer pricing software. It's no wonder we're the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. There we go again. I'm so sorry, Big you know what? Wait, who am I kidding? Sign up for a free demo of cross-border solutions transfer pricing technology today at xbs.ai slash tp. That's xbs.ai slash tp. So if you've made it this far through the podcast, you're probably aware of BEPS, base erosion and profit shifting. But what about BEPS Action 13? I smell a vocabulary lesson. In 2015, the OECD issued Action 13 Final Report, Transfer Pricing Documentation, and Country-by-Country Reporting, introducing a three-tiered approach to transfer pricing documentation, Country-by-Country Report, Local File, and Master File, as part of the 15-part action plan created by the OECD. The OECD Inclusive Framework member countries have committed to enacting legislation requiring M&Es 
with a global revenue of 750 million euros or more, that's about 895 million US dollars, to comply to a country-by-country reporting requirements for fiscal years starting on or after January 1st, 2016, making it one-fourth of BEPS minimum standards. Now, what does BEPS Action 13 aim to do? How effective has it been at preventing base erosion and profit shifting, Mimi? Well, I mean, first and foremost, right, I think part of the intention was to create a consistent format of information that all tax administrations have access to so that they can make better judgments about what they need to be looking for from a multinational perspective, right? And so it really helps them look at high-level transfer pricing, the high-level transfer pricing overview of the organization so that they can apply their own knowledge to establish and target the right company for audit purposes, right? And to think about, you know, where there could be some risk that they want to look more closely into. And I think I think the whole idea of BEPS Action 13, it has been successful in a lot of ways for forcing multinationals to be more transparent, right? To, to provide this level of information to the tax administrations, to be aware that they're looking at this stuff now. So I think it has been effective in creating a significant amount of awareness and awareness is that first step towards helping elicit the right behaviors, right? Of course. And what does the transfer pricing landscape look like post-BEPS? Well, transfer pricing is definitely something that needs to be more holistic. It needs to be reviewed on a global basis. It's an area where companies need to have a more structured focus because it's a, it's a transparent landscape, right? There are so many countries out there that have adopted Action 13 and then layered on their own requirements to the Action 13 documentation requirements. So multinationals can definitely, or should definitely, I should say, be of the mindset that they need to take a balanced approach to transfer pricing. It's not just mitigating the risk on a country-specific basis, only from a unilateral mindset, right? Everyone needs to take the blinders off, look at the entire forest as opposed to just that one tree in the forest. Now, up next in our tax vocabulary, we have tax scrutiny. Tax scrutiny is an increased look at the taxpayer's activity, documentation, and policies to determine if they are in compliance with current rules and regulations. What is considered a normal review? What is considered scrutinous in this context? Well, I mean, I think we're living a new normal, right? Not just even post-pandemic, but from a tax scrutiny perspective. So when we think about tax audits, there are certain routine questions that are always being asked about, right? And understanding what the intercompany transactions are, with which counterparties are these intercompany transactions with. And then, you know, that additional layer of scrutiny in this post-BEPS environment is really subject to areas where we know now countries like Germany, right, where they want to make sure that the taxpayer is doing the right thing in the right amount of time. So they give less amount of days for the German taxpayer to provide their documentation requirements to meet those requirements. Vietnam is another jurisdiction like that. And it's sort of enhancing their enforcement or their rules around what constitutes compliance. They're making it 
much more strict. And so if we want to refocus on that definition, I think enhanced scrutiny is almost like a more strict compliance environment, right? Versus what it was before. But like I said, that that ultimately has shifted the idea of what is a, a normal review. Of course. Now, I, I know you mentioned the pandemic, but how would you say COVID-19 specifically has affected the scrutiny of multinationals? Well, I think it has definitely enhanced the tax authorities' need to be scrutinous, right? And right. so when we think about the deficits in terms of tax revenues because of the COVID-19 impacts and in, in some jurisdictions and most jurisdictions, the, the tax authorities are now trying to figure out how they're going to help support any of those deficits, right? Help shore up any budget deficits, especially when they've also provided various government relief programs. So mm -hmm. transfer pricing is one of the ways that I think tax authorities can start to evaluate opportunities to bolster their underlying uh, tax revenues. So, Of course. And to end on a strong note, our last vocabulary word is digital economy. The digital economy is an economy built on digital technologies. Its hyperconnectivity allows people, organizations, and machines from all over the world to connect and do business without the problem of geographic borders. Pretty sweet. But it has its own complications for tax, of course. Given our dependence as a society on the internet and e-commerce, is the digital economy really all that different from the economy itself at this point? You know, it, it's not. And as you were describing our definition here of the digital economy, it made me think of, I don't know if you're an anime fan, but Ghost in the Machine, right? And so yes. <laughs> Music fan it, that still works. Yes, yes. If you're a fan of science fiction, and I know you are, I think that these concepts of this connectivity, it was always considered a little bit science fiction. So, but it's, it's, it is reality today the the ability to reach all these people everywhere from a commerce perspective it's amazing and definitely transformed the way that we all live and operate and so it's not really different from the economy itself i think it is the economy as it stands today everything is moving towards a digital framework i mean even my lights are controlled digitally, right? Like I mm. I this morning, I'll tell you, it's a true story. My cell phone I usually use as an alarm clock. And the battery died last night. I should have known better, but the battery <laughs> died last night. And this morning I was thinking, I don't have a clock, right? Like <laughs> yeah. I I don't know what time it is. I'm not sure am I late, am I early? It looks like I'm waking up around the right time. And so, you know what I did? I just said, hey, Google, what time is it? And I say that quietly or else it's going to respond. So, <laughs> <laughs> The Internet of Things, which I know is something we've talked about before. Yeah, she totally just answered me, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to leave that in. And I really hope the audio team leave that in. Turning back to global taxes, of course, uh, are the current global tax rules fit to govern the digital economy. I know this is a deeply philosophical concept. I know we're kind of grappling with as a world right now, but where are the gaps? Yeah, no, there's so many gaps, right? I mean, but, but at least the proposal right now, gap number one, 
this notion of taxable rights based on this definition or concept of nexus, you know, at least that's a step in the right direction because the tax rules, if we go back, were created with the idea of brick and mortar structures and established like the 1920s, right? So this is a step in the right direction. I think there's still going to be a lot of gaps with respect to business models and the way that we operate and interact and also how companies are making money, right? Like it's not just companies making money by selling a product to a consumer the way you normally think. It's not, hey, I manufacture a good I then distribute it to a consumer who enjoys it and I feel this need. Like business models are so interesting nowadays. For example, I know a company out there who they're not the company that is actually doing the the online marketing, right? And the advertisements that you see, there are companies that do that, of course. And then there are companies, there are websites that make money because they have a significant amount of viewers where the advertisers want to put their ads on those websites with the right viewers, right? But the company in between is the company that plays almost like this match.com between the advertisers and the websites. And they develop like a whole nother algorithm to figuring out how to align those two types of companies. And then they make money off of that. So all different layers. Yes. Yes. A very layered cake. Indeed. In all of this talk of global minimum taxes, the recent G7 announcement, something I think that was repeated often, I know, by Janet Yellen and elsewhere is this notion of a race to the bottom. It might not be short enough to be an official tax vocabulary word, but can you tell us what's meant by that in the grand scheme of BEPS and tax evasion, tax avoidance? I mean, I think the race to the bottom can definitely have a lot of implications, not only just on the tax base, but on a broader economic viewpoint, right? But, you know, just to simplify it a little bit, I think what we're talking about is where certain jurisdictions might just undercut other countries to attract investment, attract innovation, you know, and when you, especially when you think about perhaps a developing country that needs to provide a tax holiday to say to, you know, hey, 3M, a very large manufacturing company, come build your factory here instead of in, uh, I don't know, instead of in France, right? Because I'll give you some tax benefits. I'll give you some, you know, certain business benefits that ultimately is going to be an asset to you guys, right? So, so it's, it's, It's the ability to attract the right level of investment. And some countries have to figure out how they're going to navigate because they're still in that developing stage, right? Right. But you also have to be mindful about, is there an issue with respect to, is there any sacrifice being made with respect to, you know, the the standards of quality if you're you're going to manufacture products in the different jurisdictions or, or are the standards of, of safety and and labor. I mean, that's a big issue these days as well, right? Like, you know, are they going to align at least from an ethical perspective with our jurisdiction's mindset, right? Every country is a little bit different. So you want to be mindful of this concept of the race to the bottom. And I think that hopefully, at least from a tax perspective, we don't We don't want to create a situation where every country out in the world that says, okay, corporations don't have to pay any taxes at all anywhere, 
because it's kind of is what it is, right? <laughs> of course. It's like, because companies are the backbone of the GDP of creating jobs yep. for all of the people within our jurisdiction, right? And, and creating mm-hmm. that economy for us to be able to thrive. I also think there's something of a recognition there that the developing world, developing countries have kind of figured out that the dynamics of just trying to undercut taxes in this way doesn't necessarily help them because there's usually another country coming out from right around the corner with a lower rate or their public services might be suffering from yeah. you know having to make that offer. So it, I think it just emphasizes that you know even if you do find an Ireland or whatever jurisdiction might get something out of it this is all going in one direction. Very useful for thinking about the global dynamics. A global pandemic, a grim economic forecast, feeling the squeeze, an R&D tax credit can help lower your burn. If you qualify, the IRS and some state governments will give you a tax credit equal to 10% of your company's spend on development activities. You can even take the credit against payroll taxes if you're in the red. All you have to do is claim it. So what's stopping you? If an expensive application process is turning you off, sorry, now you really have no excuse. Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven R&D tax credit software eliminates the need for pricey consultants and allows you to apply for R&D credits all over the world for one low fee. After all, why should you have to spend your whole R&D tax credit on getting your R&D tax credit? It's your money. Keep more of it with Cross Border Solutions, the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. Request a demo today. Visit xbs.ai/rd. That's xbs.ai/rd. Welcome back, everyone. We're here with Mimi Song for yet another round of rapid fire questions more personal less to do with transfer pricing although sometimes it comes up she's done a lot of these before but we've come up with all new questions always question one mimi are you ready yes i am excellent question number two keeping with the school theme what was your favorite subject in school Oh, hands down, my favorite subject was always math, but it is it, it was always the case because I was really good at it. Yeah, amen. It, very very hard to hate anything you're good at. What <laughs> was your least favorite subject in school? You know, I I think I, I hate to say this out loud cuz my husband is a history major, but it was history. <laughs> I didn't appreciate it growing up. I mean, this and by mm-hmm. the way, when you say school, I am talking about my primary school days. So, yes. let's be clear. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, I, I would say history because at that point in my life, you know, when I was growing up, I didn't appreciate why we were learning history, right? And I just thought it was rote memorization. So, as a history buff, I can forgive you for that. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's a lot of memorization. Yes. If you could go back to school and pick another major just for fun, what would it be? Oh, I, I, w- I would definitely stick with computer science. Ooh, uh, yes. I, I would definitely go to computer science. There was a point where I did change my major to a computer science major for a semester or two, I would say. And then I switched back to economics. And it's not because I didn't like it. I thoroughly enjoyed it. But I'll be honest, it was going to be a much longer path to completion because I kind of picked it way too late. But it was fascinating. And I I do think that based on what I see today, right, and the technological advancements, I really kind of wish 
I could go back and do something more in that area. And how different things would be. Though you still might be working at Cross Border. You just might be our Absolutely. CTO. I might be the CTO. That, don't, <laughs> sit, don't tell Jason that. Don't, I won't. I won't. <laughs> your secret's safe with me. I don't, I don't know if he listens to all of these. What part of your job keeps you learning the most? Oh, I think professionally speaking, it's all the people around me, right? I mean, even you, Matthew, talking to you, I feel like I'm always learning a new fun fact and just learning about people, where they grew up, how they see the world. That's, that's, that's a fascinating aspect of my job, I feel like, and it just, I'm, I'm constantly learning. Of course. And who to date has instilled the most valuable career lesson for you? I will humbly have to acknowledge my husband, Will, on that front. And, and here's why. He pushes me to limits where I never even thought I could go. He basically challenges me all the time. And from a career perspective, it has been, I feel like I'm only as successful because of him, right? And I know that a lot of times women will say that they, well, you hear about the woman behind the man, but I think that works both ways, right? And so I will credit him for helping with my career. And, and through that, really the lesson ultimately is, it doesn't matter what everyone else thinks or says, right? It's whatever you want to achieve, picture it and build a plan towards it and like plan it out. How are you going to get there? Don't just moan about it and don't just talk about it. Do it. Now I feel like a Nike commercial. Just do it. Is that like, are we allowed no, to talk no, about no, that? No, 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 yeah. no, you're fine. Just, I mean, just do it. I mean, plan <laughs> yeah. it is really more your point. Like do, doing it's it. one thing and talking about it's one thing. And I, it goes back to one of my favorite quotes, Alexander Hamilton, which is plans are useless, but planning is everything. Yeah, it, it, that's like whatever, excellent. Plans go awry, but that you spent that much time thinking about it. Whenever I hear that quote, I immediately think of your old bank where they spent 80% of their time planning and then yes, 20% and 20% on execution. That's exactly yep. right. And they had to know, above all, plans go to hell, but that you were thinking about even all of the contingencies means in the moment when things go haywire because you spent so much time planning, you usually got some idea of what to do in that moment, even when it all goes to hell because yeah. you thought about it so much. So I think we can leave it off at your husband and Alexander Hamilton and Japanese planning and work ethics because <laughs> that's right. the, all three of those folks know what they're talking about. So that's right. <laughs> Mimi, thank you so much for being with us again on today's podcast. We want to thank everyone at home for joining us. Don't forget to check out this podcast along with Cross Border Solutions' entire suite of tax podcasts available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. This podcast was hosted by Matthew DeMello. Andrew O'Donnell is our audio producer. Christy Clements is our associate producer. Mary Lynn Mitchumstrom is our executive producer. We're at the end of this thing, folks. Stay safe out there, get vaccinated, and we'll see each other very soon. Until next week. Until next week.